Hey, it's Josh. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to let you all know that the Vermont Public Spring Membership Drive has arrived. Donations from folks like you make everything we do here possible. If you want to help support our people-powered journalism, be sure to make a donation in any amount by March 16th by going to bravelittlestate.org donate. And as always, thank you for your support. Almost exactly a year ago, in January 2019, Green Mountain College made an announcement. The spring semester would be its last. Thursday's gloomy weather matching the mood on the campus of Green Mountain College in Poultney, Vermont. The liberal arts college that specialized in environmental studies wasn't bringing in enough revenue. The main problem was shrinking enrollment. Green Mountain College had been struggling for years to balance its budget and keep its enrollment numbers. But it wasn't the first time this kind of story was in the news. I'm Alex Keefe with VPR News. A few years prior, in 2016... Burlington College is shutting down at the end of next week. Burlington College had closed down, also due to financial pressures. Officials made the announcement this morning. They say they had no choice. But last year, after the news about Green Mountain College, this story started almost repeating itself. In March... Southern Vermont College in Bennington, Vermont... And just a few weeks later, the College, the College of St. Joseph, Joseph in Rutland. Closing the college at the end of the academic year due to financial issues and low enrollment. Then, later on in November... We don't have enough students, and, and therefore we don't have a, enough revenue to be sustainable. Another one, Marlborough College. Marlborough College plans to close this spring and transfer students and faculty to Emerson College in Boston. All these stories sound the same. It's heartbroken because I came here to be close to where I am. It's difficult to try and stomach. As you can imagine, many parents were really angry. Now, schools close. It happens. For example, maybe you remember Trinity College in Burlington. It shut down in 2000. But to have so many closures in such quick succession... I really thought that we haven't seen the end of it yet, and I wanted to find out why. My colleague Amy Kolb-Noyes reports on education for VPR. And over the past six months, she's been digging into this story, this trend. So there are several types of colleges and universities in Vermont. There are public schools, UVM, and the state college system. The vast majority of the other colleges are these small, independent colleges that I've been focusing on. Amy had a lot of her own questions. I wanted to know why these colleges were closing and if we needed to worry about other Vermont independent colleges following the trend and what the colleges that remain are doing differently in order to remain viable. But we also figured we'd take this opportunity to answer your questions. That's what we do on this show. You tell us what you want to know, and we set out to find the answers. Because we think our journalism is better when you're a part of it. So from Vermont Public Radio, this is Brave Little State. I'm Angela Evansy, and today... Cassie, I'm going to have you bring that mic a little closer to you. Good afternoon. Answers to your questions about higher ed in Vermont. All of those things compound to the idea about, you know, it makes me ask, what's happening to Vermont? (laughs) We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. Welcome. And Sunset Lake CBD, a farmer-owned business crafting CBD products right here in Vermont. Learn more about their sustainable farming practices, delivery options, and how to support local farmers at sunsetlakecbd.com. 
Thanks to Vita for their support of Brave Little State. Since 1974, Vita has helped Vermont businesses grow and thrive. From agriculture to energy, startups to family companies. Find solutions that fit your business. Visit VEDA.org to start your next chapter today. There's a lot of debate right now about the value of a liberal arts education in the 21st century. Spoiler, we're going to acknowledge that debate in this episode, but we are not going to try to determine who's right. We're also not going to weigh the question of whether college should actually be free, even though that's a big topic in the current presidential primary. Instead, we're going to stick to three of your questions. First up. Hi, my name is Diana Clark. I'm from South Burlington, and I currently live overseas. So why are student populations shrinking? We're starting here because shrinking student populations are at the center of this whole phenomenon of schools closing. In fact, it's a population trend that has its own name, a very ominous sounding name. The demographic cliff. The demographic cliff. If you're connected to the world of higher education, you've heard this phrase. If not, it refers to a population of students that is shrinking quite dramatically. If you were to look at the numbers on a graph, you'd see them drop off like a cliff. So why are these student populations shrinking? Basically, the American birth rate dropped dramatically starting in 2008. When the Great Recession hit, people stopped having babies. And Americans still aren't having kids at the same rate as before 2008. And now, since 08 in particular, and the recession of 08, you guys have stopped having babies. In fact, you haven't started again. So that is the cliff that people are talking about. That's Richard Schneider. He's the president of Norwich University. He and other administrators know that the numbers will get even worse. We're only a dozen years out from the 2008 recession. Most students start college around 18. In other words, we're just barely starting to go over the demographic cliff. And so I think the challenges that uh, we face are, are real and identifiable. Matthew Durr is already seeing the effects of this cliff, which has also been called the birth dearth. Durr is the president of Sterling College. It's a small, environmentally focused work college in Crassbury Common. He's been there for about seven years. In the time that I've been president at, at Sterling, the number of graduates in, in Vermont uh, high schools has declined by 20 percent. That's, that's just a short period of time, really. 20 percent. So that's the cliff. And in fact, Vermont is a little further down that cliff than other parts of the country. And to Diana's question about shrinking student population, there's something else compounding the problem. Fewer high school graduates are taking the traditional college path for a multitude of reasons. The high cost of college is a big one, but it's not the only reason. You know, based upon my experience as an elementary school teacher, I do think our school systems have gotten too oriented toward everybody's heading to college. That is the yardstick. Some people want to work with their hands. This is our next question asker, Andy. Hi, my name's Andy Davis, and I live in Brattleboro. And I'm wondering if small liberal arts colleges are closing throughout New England, throughout the country, or if, if this is just happening here in Vermont. It is so rare that we have a question asker <laughs> nail the question on the first try. So good. That was perfect. Andy went to VPR studio in Brattleboro at the Latches Theater to talk to Amy and me. Why did you ask this question? Where did your curiosity come from? 
Well, it started right in my family. My daughter, who has special needs, was going to a program at Southern Vermont College in Bennington. Andy's daughter was actually attending Southern Vermont College when it announced it was closing. We had to find an alternative, and fortunately, she's now up at Castleton. He's paid attention to the other closures, too. And um, there's also been on the national scene all this talk about the cost of college and the amount of student debt. So I know it is a national problem, but I just didn't know if these small colleges are particularly hard hit because they're rural, because they're particularly small. Now, usually we meet our question askers before we set out to answer their questions. But when we talked to Andy, and when we talked to our next question asker, Cassie, Amy had already done most of her reporting, which was great because we got to have a nice long conversation and share the answers on the spot. Amy also played some tape from her reporting. You'll hear us refer to those little sound clips as bites. Maybe let's tackle the first part of your question, which is sort of like, is this just a Vermont thing? Is this happening in other places? Um, So Amy, how would you answer that? I would say um, it is not just a Vermont problem. It's all of the above. It's happening throughout New England. It's happening throughout the United States. And Vermont is definitely well represented, but also New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, and Connecticut, but then also Wisconsin, Alabama, Kansas, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, California, really, truly all over the country. Um, You're kind of scaring me. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) so true. It's worse than I thought. To answer your question and my questions, one of the first people I spoke to was Susan Stightley. She's the president of the Association of Vermont Independent Colleges. They call it AVIC. So she's got a pretty good handle on the challenges that all of these small Vermont schools face. So I just wanted to play you a little tape from um, my conversation with her. Great. I think across New England, we're going to see more colleges close, uh, and, and across the country as well. Another huge demographic drop is coming in 2023. Um, so again, there's going to be a, a big lack of college-age students. So this is an ongoing situation for many years to come. Any gut reactions to what she had to say? Well, um, it, it almost just makes me ask more questions. One is, are there any success stories The other question that popped into my mind is, you know, we've had this program of paying people a stipend to come to Vermont and telecommute, and it seems to me that education is a perfect opportunity for using technology to be in a treehouse in Vermont and yet be studying, you know, Middle Eastern art or, you know, be in touch with uh, engineers in Seattle uh, because we have that ability. Right. Connectivity is a big piece of the puzzle there. And and I'll tell you, um, there are schools that are leaning into um, distance learning. Champlain College just announced that they have cut their online tuition in half in order to, I think, really promote their online learning program. And Sterling College has a new continuing education department. They call it the School for the New American Farmstead. Yeah. And they are working with, like, cheesemakers and um, authors from Chelsea Green Publishing to teach these 
short credential courses, not degree programs, um, and they're attracting people from all over the world. Yeah. Um, so yes, <laughs> there there is some good news coming out of this. Let me. I actually have a bite here from Matthew Durr, who is the president of Sterling College, and he speaks a little bit here about the perception of small colleges closing in Vermont and how they're handling that and what it means for them. Let me play that for you. Good. We're definitely part of an ecosystem of of colleges in New England. And I think one of the really tragic things about the closures is it creates a narrative about Vermont that is unhelpful. And, And so we'll see flat enrollment from last year to this year. What strikes me about the bite that you just played, Amy, um, the fact that we have this sort of cascade of closures is a story in and of itself. And it's kind of shaping Vermont's reputation as a whole and, and trickling down to whether or not people might be applying to Vermont schools because they've seen this coverage of, oh, all these schools are closing. It sort of compounds on itself. I, I think the thing about uh, the way it's shaping maybe people's perception of Vermont is unfortunate. Um, I know with Act 46, we're, you know, it's not the intention of that legislation, but schools are closing. We're, we're losing students from the, the youngest part of our educational system as well as college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have schools closing. We have other you know, institutions just recently, statewide news about our psychiatric hospital here in, in Brattleboro. And all of those things compound to the idea about, you know, it makes me ask, you know, what's happening to Vermont? <laughs> well, I have a little bit more tape to play you. And this um, this goes in a sort of a different direction. It, it's... Um, it comes from Norwich University in Northfield. Sure. Um, Norwich is about as different from Sterling College <laughs> as it gets, right? It's the, uh, uh, yes. it's the biggest independent college in Vermont. It has about 4,000 undergraduate and graduate students, um, civilians, military cadets. It's the oldest private military college in the country. And the president there is Richard Schneider, who has also been around a, a good deal. He's retiring this year after 28 years on the job. Um <laughs> And he makes the point that this problem um, didn't happen overnight. It's been a long time in the making. So I wanted to play you a little bit from him. Good. Before World War II, there were just a small percentage of America that went to college. Um, After World War II, with the GI Bill, we overbuilt. And it's really a shame. But this is just natural selection at work. And there will be more schools closing both in Vermont, I think, and in other places, because the students are simply not there. So these, um, these demographic issues are, are definitely a big part of the problem. But as you mentioned, they're not the only problem. Some students don't want to go to college. They don't see the payoff. But you also asked specifically about rural versus urban. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to play you uh, another piece from uh, Susan at the Association for Vermont Independent Colleges about that specific topic. I mean, I do think one of the trends nationally is people are not so interested in being in rural areas anymore. So, you know, they want to go to an urban area. So that's probably part of the demographic changes as well for Vermont. But there still are people who value this type of lifestyle that we have and want to come here and experience it. Well, there it is. (laughs) 
There it is. I, I wonder if she's basing that anecdotally or if she's ex, uh, expressing it, you know, from something expressed in college applications or... Well, maybe another uh, piece of tape from Richard Schneider will help answer that question. Rural America is dying. So this is the fourth year now that more students, 18-year-olds, have grown up in cities than in rural America. And we don't know what that means for us yet, I don't think. Like when they come to this beautiful Northfield with one blinking light. Or, you know, Putney or Bennington or you name it, other than Burlington. Will they say, like, there's nothing here for me? I mean, we talk about being outside and fly fishing and mountain biking and snowshoeing and skiing. But the kids in the cities are not doing those things. So what does that mean for our high-quality, valued-centered, small colleges? Yeah, well, I'll say it again. I'm, uh, I'm not feeling better. <laughs> I, st- I still love life here, and uh, you know, both of my children are now in their mid-20s, and they're still here and committed to Vermont, it seems. Um, but when I think about the the huge national demographic i can see you know maybe this is part of our diversity challenge in vermont one more bite um for you to hear that speaks a little more about the uh lack of diversity i'm sorry it doesn't it doesn't put a big light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> sorry <laughs> i'm not looking for the light anymore <laughs> all right here's one more thought though on lack of diversity given the atmosphere in our country, we now have international students who are afraid to come to this country. So not only are we losing our own population, we're losing the international population that was coming here. And that's Susan Stitely from AVIC again. Well, my only comment on that is that is one tragic development that I certainly didn't see coming. I mean, we are, let's face it, America, we are an international community. And the thought that we've somehow Hold up the welcome mat is one of the saddest things I think I've witnessed. Andy, um, thank you so much. You've been such a great question asker. Well, really. thank you. And I, I, I really do think this is valuable. Your whole project is super valuable, and I just wish you well with it. Thank you. So far, we've been talking about the problems that colleges are facing, specifically forces that are outside of schools' control. But there are some institutions that have created their own problems, at least when it comes to finances. Some of the institutions that I think will really struggle in the the next 10 years are those that that made decisions around their physical plants as a a way of becoming more competitive in relationship to their, their perceived, maybe not even their real, peer group of colleges. That's Matthew Durrigan, president of Sterling College. What he's talking about there are schools that have taken on a lot of debt in order to build things to attract more students. That could be fancy new dorms or buildings to house new programs. The hope is that the investment pays off. But Durr says some of the colleges that have closed or are in trouble have taken on more debt than they can afford. For context, here are some numbers. You know, the, the Sterling College example would be that our, our debt per student is about $5,000. Well, the debt for some of the colleges that they're closing is $50,000 a student. But that's not to say that Durr thinks schools at risk should be apathetic. The reality is that 
um, that is a call for more innovation, more forward thinking, some risk taking on the part of, 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 of these institutions. So next up, we move from problems to solutions. What are schools doing to face up to these challenges? That's right after this. My name is Cassie Major. I live in Barrie, Vermont. I had just uh, wondered and seen many things in the news about small colleges in Vermont and wondered uh, how other small liberal colleges, uh, much like Goddard College, where I used to live in Plainfield, um, are surviving and working through this process. That sounded rather wordy. <laughs> That's pretty good. You, that... That's pretty good, actually. That's why we do many takes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My name is Cassie Major. I live in Barrie, Vermont. And I'm wondering what small colleges are doing to help themselves survive in this state of Vermont. Cassie Major is our final question asker. I'm a, a retired educator. Um, taught 32 years, uh, ended my career up at Barry Town School. But I lived in Plainfield, so I was aware of Goddard. So as a, an educator who's been on several state-level boards, uh, I just am concerned that Vermont has enough uh, opportunities for uh, students to uh, access education. Should we dive right in, Angela? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So... You specifically asked about Goddard. Before we get there, I'd like to talk about how some of the other colleges are taking steps to weather the storm. You know, legally, I'll do a disclaimer, I have been a financial contributor to Goddard over the years. Uh, so that was kind of just threw it in there. But I do have a concern for the whole rest of the state. Well, that's an amazing, an amazing comment because one of the things that Goddard and others are doing is having fundraising campaigns. One, for example, is Bennington College. They are um, raising money for student scholarships by selling art that's been donated to the college. Mm. Um, and I have the interim college president, Isabel Roche, talking about that. I'm going to play you a little clip and okay. see what you think about that. We launched a program that's called Art for Access, building on Bennington's really strong legacy um, in the visual arts, whereby people are giving art to the college to be sold when it's right, with the proceeds going to, for scholarships for students. So leaning into fundraising is one way that some of our Vermont colleges are planning their way out of what is mostly a demographic dip, mm -hmm. but also um, a change in people's perception of the value of a college education. Yeah, I know. I've always been a proponent of vocational education, too. I mean, we need those plumbers, those electricians, those car mechanics, you know, all of those, too. So, mm -hmm. And those are good-paying jobs in Vermont, too. Yeah. yeah. So um, I've found through my reporting that the schools that are most at risk are the small colleges that don't have a large endowment to fall back on. And if they aren't attracting any donors... They're relying on tuition to stay afloat, and when the number of students drops, they may not have any way to make up for that lost income. So leaning into the mission, that can also be a way to attract students. And one of the schools that's doing that is Landmark College. Are you familiar with Landmark? Oh, yes. Yes. All right. So um, for people who don't know, Landmark College is a school in Putney. 
It is for students with learning differences, such as autism and dyslexia and ADHD. The president of that college is Peter Eden, and he says some schools get less selective about students when their numbers start to go down, and some schools offer up more grants and scholarships to discount the tuition price to attract more students, but that's not what they're doing at Landmark. What we've chosen to do is is uh, be resolute in controlling the discount rate and being selective so that we have the highest quality campus irrespective of the number of students. Now, what we've done also is we've intentionally uh, invested in ways to generate revenue by fulfilling our mission, I would say, outside of New England. So specifically, he says they're actually looking at um, trying to open up another campus eventually out west. We know we need to be highly intentional about reaching these students elsewhere because of the shrinking New England demographic. Another possibility is rather than building out more physical plants is to just offer more where you are, right? Mm -hmm. So that's kind of what St. Michael's College is working on. St. Michael's College President Lorraine Sturrett says her college is also leaning into its mission, but rather than expanding geographically, it's growing the number of academic majors that they offer at their Colchester campus. So, for example, uh, we have had a sociology major forever, and now we're adding a criminology major. So it's something that is still very much based in our core strength, but taking a slightly different slant. I would say a, a slightly more applied direction. Lorraine Sturt is fairly new to St. Michael's College, and she says that that willingness to evolve was one of the things that attracted her to come here. So I would say it was the combination of the strong academics and the, the willingness to move with the times, because we, we can't just be stuck in the past. We, we have to move with the times, not only to preserve the college, but, but also to serve our students well, because the, the world is changing very, very rapidly. Another school um, that's in close proximity to St. Mike's and and similar in size is Champlain College over Mm. in Burlington. Um, They have an interim president right now, Lori Quinn, and she says reinvention, like they're talking about a little bit over at St. Mike's with the majors, reinvention is part of that school's story, its history. And she thinks it's really important right now to keep that going. The stereotype in higher education is one of long-standing tradition, and we're a little more restless at Champlain. We like to reinvent, and so um, the reinvention from a two-year school to a four-year school, um, the introduction of master's degrees, and being early on uh, in the early 90s in adult and online education was also very powerful for us. Being nimble, I think, Mm -hmm. is something that uh, is a common theme here. Oh, yes, yes. And one of the things that they're looking on at now is micro-credentials. Have you heard anything about hmm. micro-credentials? No. So it's a, it's a very insidery term that just basically means um, a certificate program instead of a degree. So it could be for someone like an online learner who is going back to school to update their skills um, for a change in 
occupation. The new data about how many career changes folks are facing in the course of a, of a normal working life has really prompted us to look closely at what does the student need in order to be a successful professional over the long haul. And so um, for that reason, the shorter term credentials uh, are very much a part of our next five years. So I have uh, one more school I want to talk to you about before we get to Goddard, uh, and that is Middlebury. So when Lori Quinn was talking about schools that are steeped in tradition, um, you, you think of elite schools like Middlebury, at least I do. But in its own way, Middlebury is also catering to older learners. Uh, here's what President Lori Patton had to say. The interesting thing about Middlebury is we have... Um, almost as many graduate students in any given year as undergrads, but because they are separated by um, both time and space, the freshness and focus and intensity of the liberal arts and sciences undergrad experience isn't compromised. So we kind of feel like we have the best of both worlds. So she's talking about programs like the Middlebury's Breadloaf School of English and mm-hmm. their summer um, language schools. And the language schools are a good example of the way they're partnering with other colleges. They've just brought Bennington on to be a partner, so they'll be offering some summer language schools down in Bennington. And I have one more clip for you from Lori Patton. Um, she's talking about a different kind of partnership, one with the host community, the town of Middlebury. And this seems particularly important in Vermont, I think. It's really remarkable to think of a town as kind of a fellow traveler with the college. That's different than benefiting from what a college can offer. Um, So I think the more that people can think of themselves as supporters of and fellow travelers with a college, the more creative they will be about what they can do to keep a college viable. So you mentioned you've lived in a college town Mm -hmm. in Plainfield. So um, what do you know about Goddard right now? What do you know about its current well, I've, situation? Well, I've seen the, you know, that they just put out about their fundraising and hoping to obtain that by the fiscal year. So this is a really super interesting situation to me anyway. Um, Goddard was put on probation by the New England Commission of Higher Education in September 2018. There were two reasons. One was governance and the other was finances. Mm. And right after that, uh, President Bernard Bull took over. The college was operating with a million-dollar deficit, but they have since balanced their budget. Um, As you said, they just launched that fundraising campaign, and the goal for that money is to build cash reserves and also to prove to the accreditation agency that they are on solid financial footing or at least getting there. One of the key pieces for us is to do something that every individual has to do to be responsible with their finance. We have to live within our means. That uh, um, if you have a certain amount of uh, pay coming in from your job, you have to be living <laughs> at that amount or less. Having, like I said, been a citizen in Plainfield and a voter uh, there, uh, I've known that Goddard has risen out of the Phoenix fire many times and will wish it the best to do that this time as well. <laughs> So there are lots of different answers to Cassie's question about what schools are doing in the face of declining enrollment and financial hardship. But for Goddard, like we just heard from Bernard Bull, 
the path forward involves a pretty simple approach. Live within your means. Goddard is arguably in the most precarious position of all of Vermont's remaining independent colleges. But Bull says it's not just a matter of fixing your finances. You've got to keep the spirit of the place alive. It's not really healthy to just focus upon what do we need to do to survive. I think we need to have a climbing a mountain versus climbing out of a hole type of of, uh, vision here. And that calls for constant reinvention and recreation and experimentation because the world is constantly changing. For Goddard and the rest of Vermont's independent colleges, time will tell. Remember that the Northeast is a little bit further down the so-called demographic cliff than other parts of the country. So how we respond will inevitably become an example of what to do or what not to do. For some Vermont colleges, their efforts may eventually prove to be too little, too late. But as they say, they're giving it the old college try. Thanks so much for listening to the show. And thanks to Diana Clark, Andy Davis, and Cassie Major for the great questions. Amy Kolb-Noy's reporting for this episode was made possible by a fellowship from the Education Writers Association. As always, if you have questions about Vermont that you want us to answer, head to bravelittlestate.org. While you're there, you can vote on the question you want us to tackle next. Our editor is Lynn McRae, and our theme music is by Ty Gibbons. Other music by Blue Dot Sessions. Our digital producer is Elodie Reed, and we have engineering support from Chris Albertine. Brave Little State is a production of Vermont Public Radio. We have support from the VPR Innovation Fund. How can you support the show? Head to bravelittlestate.org slash donate to become a sustaining member of our station. We can't do this work without you. I'm Angela Evansy. We'll be back soon. Until then, remember, be brave, ask questions. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.